If that is a new song for you, it came out of a series we did where we took a break from all of our normal programming to just sing, pray, and read, and talk through psalms. And what we did during that series last spring is we actually recorded these psalms. And so if you want to um, listen to them again, or remember them, or get to know those songs, you can uh, get all those recordings um, that we did and listen to those songs. And they are straight out of the psalms. And so sometimes it is fun and helpful and different to sing just straight out of scripture. And this is one of those songs that has sort of come with us out of that series. So if it's new to you, um, there are uh, some ways you can um, learn it and sing it throughout the week if you would like to. But good morning. Welcome to Cooks Hill. It's still summer. Someone did say that they were talking about rain um, today and I cut it off. So we don't have to talk about it yet. It's good. I caught it before it got into spreading to the rest of us. Uh, We won't talk about rain yet, but we will uh, get there eventually. So you know when uh, you have guests or visitors, which is a little bit of a different concept now that we have COVID, but typically when you have guests or you have visitors to your home, there's a certain amount of things that are expected or necessary. When someone shows up to your house, they announce that they've shown up to your house, either by knocking on the door or ringing the doorbell if you have one. Somehow they make their presence known to you that they are there, and then you go to the door, you see who they are, if you weren't expecting guests, if you were expecting guests, and then you let them in, and then from there, maybe they take off their shoes, maybe you tell them to take off their shoes, whatever's a custom in your home. And there's uh, a general flow, a general practice that happens in that space. And there are certain things that are potentially considered outside of custom. Maybe at your home, you always take off shoes, but at their home, they don't. Um, Maybe there are certain things you do that they don't necessarily do, but they're just outside of custom, not necessarily rude things. And so if someone comes into your home and they don't right away take off their shoes, it's not crazy. It might be out of custom for your home, but it's not super wild or super weird or anything intense at all. But then there's other things that someone could do when they come to your home that are downright rude and super crazy. And for example, in today's world, something like that would be if someone came to your house, you were not expecting guests, they did not knock on the door, they opened, they walked in, it was about dinner time, they went into your kitchen, they insisted that you leave your home, and then they began to make dinner with your groceries and your stove and your kitchen all while they were expecting that you were going to leave your home. That would not just be out of custom. That would be incredibly rude and very surprising. Shocking, horrifying, confusing. You'd be like, "Uh, do I know them? Do I not know them? Do I know them well enough to be like, hey, this is my house. What's happening? Or do I just call the cops? Like, what am I doing here in this situation? And it would be pretty much completely crazy totally rude. And today's story has a similar parallel happening. Today's story in the New Testament 
is about a similar thing that happens. And in the Middle Eastern culture, lifestyle, way of living, way of entering a home, there was a set of expectations. And in that set of expectations, there was things like greeting with a kiss, which might be out of custom here at this point. Um, But at that point, it was custom to greet with a kiss, to offer some water for washing someone's feet. They likely traveled on foot and their feet were dirty, offering some water to wash their feet, and then providing some olive oil so that they could anoint themselves before entering into community with the host. But this particular setting tells a different story. Verse 36, Luke chapter 7. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to have dinner with him. So Jesus went to his home and sat down to eat. This sounds so simple. And at first glance, from our Western perspective, there's nothing wrong here. There's nothing bizarre or crazy. And without any context, it seems normal. Jesus got invited to a Pharisee's home. He went to their home. And then he sat down to eat with him. And that feels like the right process when we read it through our own perspective. But there's a different perspective happening here. There's a different thing, and there's an omission of those greetings that we talked about. And to omit those greetings was not just outside of custom, like you walk in and you forget to take off your shoes, but it was downright rude, like walking in and telling the person who lives in the home to leave so you can use their kitchen to make your own dinner with their food and using that space in that way. And so instead of Jesus went in and sat down for dinner, it's like saying Jesus went in and realized there's an evening of intense humiliation and denial of respect planned for him. Not beginning with the typical greeting was shocking and horrifying, and it was a start to the evening that wasn't what was expected. Because those greetings were not options. They were custom. They happened every time, no matter what. And Jesus, at this point in the story, just one sentence in, has every right to say, it is obvious that you don't want me here. It is obvious that I am not welcome in your home, and so I am going to go. I'm going to take off because I don't need to be treated like this. I don't need to experience this. The omission of those greetings was a part of the Pharisee plan that they had devised to have him over and to humiliate Jesus. And in just one sentence, Jesus came in and sat down to eat dinner. There's an omission of what's expected and a reality of humiliation planned for his evening. So now we're aware of these dynamics at play, and Jesus enters and he sits down to eat. Not only do we miss the cultural things that are happening in this space, because to us it doesn't sound that weird until we dive into what should be happening in that space. There's another thing happening here in the same one first sentence that we start with, and that is that Jesus sits down. It's not weird if you walk into someone's house today and you sit down. It's not bizarre at all. But at this particular time, it was. Because Jesus walks into a Pharisee's home, who are well-respected, elders, wise people. And in Middle Eastern culture and lifestyle and history at the time, you walked into someone's home and you only sat down 
after all of the customary greetings, which in which you washed your feet, you anointed yourself, you had a greeting of a kiss, and then you sat down on a basis of oldest and wisest. And so Jesus walks into a religious leader's home, the oldest and so claimed wisest people in town, and he, being a 30-year-old person, sits down first. And he takes on the posture of the oldest and the wisest. And there's no way that Jesus at 30 years old was likely the oldest person in the room. So he comes in, and the normal courtesies and customs expected for greeting are omitted, and Jesus sits down omitting the normal customs expected for the way within which you enter a home as a guest. And in just the first sentence in this story, so Jesus went to his home and sat down to eat. We've got a whole load of backstory, cultural nuances, cultural expectations, and they have all gone wrong. There's drama, there's tension, people are flustered, people are confused, people are challenged, people are watching to see what happens next. And that's just the first sentence of this story. The story goes on when a certain immoral woman from that city heard he was eating there. She brought a beautiful alabaster jar filled with expensive perfume. Then she knelt behind him at his feet weeping. Her tears fell on his feet, and she wiped them off with her hair. Then she kept kissing his feet and putting perfume on them. If we've learned anything in the last few months of this series of breaking down cultural ramifications and expectations and Jesus, it's that the one thing that Jesus consistently did over and over was break down cultural hierarchy and oppressive systems. He was known to eat with, sit with, care about, call friends, hang out with, enjoy the presence of people that the Pharisees would never come close to. And that's a thread in almost every week for the last several months. And the Pharisees, see, they wouldn't even hang out with these people after they had repented, and Jesus would hang out with them before they had repented. He had no problem associating with the people that the Pharisees would never, ever hang out with and that he should have known to never, ever be near. And for the Pharisees, there was a process for the sinner. The sinner would have to repent first, which was kind of expected, and then they'd have to show that they could follow all of the rules. And then there would be an expectation that they would have to live out the laws and the rules effectively and pay for the sin that they had committed. And that process would take a really, really long time. And then if that person couldn't pay for the sin that they were going to commit, then they wouldn't hang out with them ever again. And likely in the case of this woman, the Pharisees would say, there is no way, even if she asked for forgiveness, they would say, there's no way that what you've done can be paid for. So even after forgiveness and repentance and all the laws and rules that you have to follow, we're still not going to come near you. We're still not going to hang out with you. We're still not going to associate with you. And this woman had heard that Jesus was at a Pharisee's house. 
And she said, I know a guy that will hang out with me. She heard him talk about the good news, that God loves sinners and that his grace would cover all of that she had done and that it would be available to her even if traditionally she wouldn't be able to pay for her own sins or compensate in any way. She investigated Jesus' whereabouts. She found out where he was going. She brought perfume for anointing because she planned to anoint him after his feet had been washed and he had been greeted and had been given the opportunity to settle in. And sadly, there's no foot washing. There's no greeting. There's nothing normal that's happening. And she didn't bring water to wash his feet. She brought expensive perfume because she thought all those things would happen. And she knows they're not going to give her water. At this point, it's really clear that the plan is to humiliate Jesus. And there's no way that if she said, hey, can I do the things that, like, you're not willing to do? Like, I'll just do them, and then you can get on with your afternoon. They're not going to let her do that. And so she begins to wash Jesus' feet with her own tears. And what we know about this woman is she's probably not a paid actress who got there and was like, oh, yeah, you know what would be helpful for washing feet since I don't have water is tears. I'll just cry real quick and fix this problem, and then we'll be good. She didn't get there and have that response. She knew about Jesus, and she knew that he loved her, that he cared for her, that he had forgiveness for all of her sins, and she was witnessing his humiliation. And out of witnessing his humiliation, she chooses to share in that moment. Out of her deep love and compassion for Jesus, she's moved to tears and begins to offer Jesus all of the things that he was denied. Her gesture at this point is costly. It's expensive perfume that she was probably just planning to use a little bit of. And she's going to wash his feet in a non-traditional way. She's going to wash his feet with perfume and tears. And this decision is incredibly expensive, but there's another thing happening here. It's not just physically costly. It's also socially costly. It's a demonstration of love that costs physically and socially. And here's why. There's another detail that we miss when we read this through our perspective. It says here she used her hair to wipe his feet. Which, from our perspective, again, it's a different situation. We don't often walk into homes and see people washing people with their hair. But in this particular setting, there's even more happening here. She's doing something that's a thousand times worse than the rest of the sins that she's committed. And that is she's uncovered her hair. See, at this point in time, there was a couple of reasons in Middle Eastern culture and lifestyle that you could divorce a woman without any settlement or explanation. And one of those few things was that you could divorce a woman without any settlement, any explanation whatsoever if she uncovered her hair. It was considered incredibly sexual and perverse and very sinful. Out of culture, out of custom, incredibly wrong to uncover your hair in public. Verse 47, I tell you, her sins, and they are many, may have been forgiven. So she has shown me much love. 
but a person who is forgiven little shows only little love. Then Jesus said to the woman, your sins are forgiven. At the end of this story, we're told that this woman's display of love was in relation to her understanding of her own forgiveness and desire to meet Jesus in his humiliation. When was the last time that our worship was physically or socially costly? See, we've gotten really used to a display of love that doesn't cost us anything. She entered the room knowing that her sins were forgiven and her love was driven by an understanding of forgiveness and love for Jesus. And while her sins are many and she has no technical way that at this point in time she can pay for her own sins, and now she's displaying her love for Jesus in a way that the Pharisees would consider a divorceable offense, Jesus doesn't stop her. He doesn't think twice. Why? Because she understands forgiveness. And out of having been forgiven for all of the things in her story, she's now loving in a way that meets that. Verse 38, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman is touching him. She's a sinner. Simon the Pharisee is behaving a lot like many Christians and many churches do. Sadly and unfortunately today, he's thinking, why has Jesus not asked her to leave? Why has he not asked for us to remove her? What is he thinking? How dare he let this happen? Does he not see that her hair is uncovered? Does he not see that she's lived this lifestyle that doesn't fit with us and that she can't be in our presence and that if he lets her touch him or comes close to him, then he gets associated with this? And like, what is Jesus thinking? How can he be a prophet if he's allowing this to happen? Because the Pharisees were pros at determining which sins were the worst sins. And they thought for sure that Jesus would know what that list looks like too. Then Jesus answered his thoughts. And I just love this phrase. I love it. It's not in my notes at all, but here's the thing. Sometimes we need a reminder that Jesus can answer our thoughts. Now, a few weeks ago, I had a, uh, a meeting with about 25 people or so, and I said, here's a would you rather. Would you rather everyone have access to your internet browsing history, or would you rather that everyone have access to all of your thoughts? And unanimously, the entire room was like, no, 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 the thoughts thing. Like, I can handle the internet browsing thing, but if everybody had access to my thoughts, I think that would be the end of the world. And everybody had the same opinion. They were like, no, 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 no. Like, we do not want people to know our thoughts. Like, that's not ideal. And you can keep them from most people, some better than others. But you cannot keep them all from Jesus. And sometimes Jesus answers thoughts. And he does that here. Simon, he said to the Pharisee, I have something to say to you. Go ahead, teacher, Simon replied. This is where Simon is waiting. He's on his, at the edge of his seat, and he is anticipating that Jesus is about to say, could you please remove this awful woman from my presence? 
and your house and like kick her out. Let's be done with this whole thing. It's defiling the cleanness of this space that we're in. And so Simon is like, go ahead, Jesus. Say what you're thinking. And he's expecting Jesus to say, uh, get her out. Then Jesus told him this story. A man loaned money to two people, 500 pieces of silver to one and 50 pieces to the other. But neither of them could repay him, so he kindly forgave them both, canceling their debts. Who do you suppose loved him more after that? Simon answered, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the larger debt. That's right, Jesus said. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, look at this woman kneeling here. When I entered your home, you didn't offer me water to wash the dust from my feet, but she has washed them with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't greet me with a kiss, but from the time I first came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You neglected the courtesy of olive oil to anoint my head, but she has anointed my feet with rare perfume. I tell you, her sins, and they are many, have been forgiven. So she has shown me much love. But a person who is forgiven little shows only little love. Then Jesus said to the woman, your sins are forgiven. The men at the table said amongst themselves, who is this man that he goes around forgiving sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Simon the Pharisee has invited Jesus over to examine him, to find out if he's crazy, figure out what he knows and what he doesn't, and then he plans to humiliate him in the process. And Jesus has every right to get offended and leave, but he doesn't. Instead, he sits down and a woman begins to wash his feet. She offers him the courtesies expected that the Pharisees denied. And out of her intense compassion for Jesus and love for him in the moment of humiliation, she begins to weep of her understanding of forgiveness and use her own tears to wash his feet. For Simon the Pharisee, a good prophet, would avoid any interaction with the woman whatsoever, ask her to be removed, and then carry on with whatever the evening had planned. But a good prophet for sure wouldn't come into contact or risk coming too close to a woman like that. And for Jesus, the very act of engaging with sinners and offering them forgiveness is what he has shown time and time and time again. And it's why he's shown up. And Jesus' final interaction with the woman was to remind her that her love and willingness to join in his suffering granted her the ability to go from that home in peace. And once again, Jesus shows that he's dismantling the cultural norms, the cultural hierarchy, the cultural systems, and he's offering forgiveness. So there's some observations this morning that we're going to make. And one of the things that rings true about this whole interaction from start to finish is the connection between forgiveness and love. The more we understand the intensity of the forgiveness offered on our behalf for our sins, the more costly our display of love is going to be. Simon the Pharisee didn't feel like he had any sins. He didn't feel like he did anything wrong. And it's pretty typical for Pharisees throughout all the things that we've studied and read to sit in this space where like they don't really need forgiveness, which lines up with how much they love. 
And so his love, the Pharisee's love for Jesus is sort of on par with his understanding of forgiveness. It just wasn't there. And we can often see this understanding of love and forgiveness in people who are new in their faith. People who just found Jesus and they're so overwhelmed with how much he loves them and how forgiven their sins are. That they are willing to tell everyone they know about Jesus. They are willing to do whatever it takes for Jesus to know how much they love him and for others to know how much they've been forgiven. And they want everyone around them to see and experience the hope and the forgiveness that they have in Jesus. They don't always behave a specific way, talk a specific way, or look a specific way. They just want people to experience the forgiveness that they've experienced. But then a lot of times we move out of that space. We get hurt. We get some distance from the things that we originally felt so forgiven over. And we remove ourselves slightly in time from the moment of forgiveness that felt so real and intense and that moved our love. And we start to find and interpret rules of our own from Scripture. And we lose sight of what it means to love as much as we've been forgiven. And when we lose sight of what it means to love as much as we've been forgiven, the second observation this morning begins to happen. We disassociate with sinners or people that we determine are worse than us in the context of their sin. We start to notice when people wear shorts to church or someone's wearing a hat or we start to notice when people use words or language that, well, we don't use that anymore because, well, we might have at one point, we are better than that now. And somehow in the years that go by, In the sneakiest of ways, our understanding of the love and forgiveness applied to our own lives turns into judgment over someone else's life. Jesus is in this space with a woman who is doing something that was a divorceable offense, a pretty big deal. And everyone in the room was waiting to see if Jesus would condemn her like they wished. They were waiting to see if that moment would show up where Jesus would say, get rid of her. And yet he not only loved her, her sins had been forgiven and her worship of Jesus was considered holy. So maybe we're in a place today where all we need to know is that Jesus loves us and our worship is holy and it's accepted. No matter what our past, our present, or our future looks like, Jesus loves us, he accepts our worship, he considers us holy, he offers us the forgiveness of sins in the space of our repentance And I hope you also, if we're in that space, know that this church, although it's messy and it's full of people who are also messy because people are messy everywhere you go, we are working to become more like Jesus every single week. And we are openly addressing our own failures to love, our pride in the spaces where maybe we've been responsible for deepening the wounding that someone else is experiencing. 
And we pray that as a church, we would be a church that doesn't deepen the wound that anyone is experiencing, but instead extends the healing that Jesus offers. In our story each week, there's a growing number of people who are joining in the repentance of self-righteous or judgmental behavior. And we're moving in the direction of becoming more like Jesus every single week. And the healing that follows those moments is incredible. It's amazing. Do we want you to show up here and experience the love of Jesus without the expectation that you have to clean up your act first? And we're learning how to do that. And when we fail, we're repenting. And maybe this morning you're in a space where you need to hear the message for Simon. And that maybe that's our message this morning. Most likely you're in this space today at church because at some point in your life you've experienced a forgiveness that moved you to love as much as you have been forgiven. And at one point, out of that forgiveness flowed a love for Jesus that was like rare and expensive perfume in the washing of his feet. And over time, maybe we've grown to reflect the behavior of the Pharisee a little bit more. Maybe our group of people all look, act, behave the same as us. Maybe we have lists of worse sins than other sins. I challenged us a few weeks ago to identify in our own minds if we have sins that we consider are worse than other sins and then to recognize that our sins that we struggle with are probably not on the list of sins we consider the worst because that's not how we function or who we are, but it's a necessary thing to do. And so maybe we've gotten to a space where all the people that we hang out with are in the same camp as us. They have the same sin struggles. They look, they behave, they function the same as we do. And for those of us in that space, I hope that we join in the repentance and that we join in the movement of being willing to respond like Jesus in the spaces where forgiveness happened instead of rejection. Where Jesus said, come sit and stay, instead of engaging the people who said, you should leave. And I pray that as a church, this group of people, we get to leave these doors this morning with an understanding that our forgiveness should move us to love in a way that is as intense as the forgiveness that we've received.